Hey everyone, welcome back to the Empowered Jewish Living Podcast. I hope that you've been enjoying all the classes and content that we've been sharing over the last couple of weeks to lead us up to the holiday of Passover. It's just a couple of days away. And uh, while I thought that I was done sharing uh, pre-Passover podcasts, I had the tremendous opportunity to speak to a fantastic lecturer and author, Rabbi Jonas Sklair, and I could not resist. I just began, I'm actually in the middle, reading his new book called A Breathtaking Panorama. And I'm loving it so much. And uh, a friend of mine, our publisher, our mutual publisher, connected us. And I could not resist the opportunity to speak to him and to go a little bit deeper into some of the themes of his book. The title of this episode is Freedom, Femininity, and Family. Rev. Yona's book delves into how the Exodus story is connected to these themes, and uh, obviously these are also some of the themes that I discuss in my new book, which made it all the more enjoyable to read his book and to hear from him. It it was a wonderful interview. He's so eloquent and articulate in his speech, and uh, I think that there will be some eye-opening insights for you, and if you listen to this before Passover begins, something to think about and to bring to your Seder. Just a reminder, if you haven't yet done so, please check out my new book, The Four Elements of Inner Freedom, based on this time of year, The Exodus Story. It is available in all of your Jewish bookstores. You can find it on my website, levx.org, or on Amazon, or on mosaicapress.com, or wherever you get your Jewish books. Thank you for listening, and enjoy this conversation with Rabbi Jonas Sklar. This is the Empowered Jewish Living Podcast, where we explore the beauty of Judaism, the depth of Jewish wisdom, and how to live a more empowered life. Welcome, everyone, to the Empowered Jewish Living Podcast. This is a very, very great pleasure to have a wonderful, renowned lecturer, a teacher, from uh, Baltimore, Maryland, Rabbi Yona Skler is on the podcast. Welcome, Rabbi Yona. Thank you so much, Reb Shlomo, for welcoming me onto your platform. Re- Rabbi Skler, I have to thank you. I have to really begin by expressing my appreciation. So I, I don't know if you're aware, I just released a new book. It's called The Four Elements of Inner Freedom. And it really is, it's a deep dive into the, the story of the Exodus, right? The Passover story. And I submitted the manuscript, you know, a few months ago, and the book just came out, and I'm speaking about it, and you know, talking all about the Exodus here and and there, and all these different places. And I'm thinking to myself, like this year, like how am I going to get into? How am I going to get into it? Because like, there's you know, pick up another Haggadah, and like, what's gonna when you when you've been living it for the last two years? Like, what what's supposed to happen now? You know, and then our publisher, we have a shared publisher, sent me your beautiful book, the breathtaking panorama, which just came out. He sent it to me, and uh, I jumped into it a few weeks ago, and oh, I was hooked, hooked, hooked. I mean, literally, I'm like, uh, I c- couldn't pull myself away, and it was just such a beautiful way to go even even deeper. So I guess let me begin by thanking you for that. Thank you. Thank you. I second that. For me, it is the greatest validation of the meaning of our Torah that we can take a story like Yitzhak Mitzrayim, the Exodus story, and we can have an accomplished author such as yourself (laughs) in the notion that some Jew or Jewess 
on the other side of the world is learning the same text and overturning it creatively in a new way, this is the magic of Torah if I've ever seen it. Right, right. Yeah, and this, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So it was beautiful. And, and I think that what I really got excited about is that the first part of your book goes deep to a lot of things that I brought up in different chapters in my book. And um, especially the first section of your book, which really focuses a lot on the family, uh, that was a theme that I opened up in a couple of different chapters in my book. And I'm excited because that's actually where I'm up to in the book. Uh, I'm excited to dive deep with you into your first section. Maybe I'll have to have you on next year, <laughs> a different time to get into the other two sections. And I think it's helpful for our listeners to understand that like, you can read the Exodus story so many times and you could completely miss this. But yet, Rabbi Sclair, what you do, and, and, and I love, by the way, how excited you, I feel your energy, I feel your emotion in the book. You share that, you project it in your writing how you weave together different ideas that have subtle hints throughout the Torah, but are magnified in the words of our sages, weaving it together with ideas from Psalms, from Tehillim, from Shirashirim. And really, like, after you, you read through that section, you're like, I, I, I can never look at this the same. I don't even see how I could have ever missed this. So that's really, really beautiful. So let's dive into the first section of the book. And here you you highlight, you focus, or as you say many times at the book, you see it in neon lights, right? But this idea of sort of the focus on the family. So let's just begin. Can you introduce to our listeners this idea, this concept of viewing the Exodus story and seeing, recognizing this focus that there was a, a targeted attack on the Jewish family. Yes, absolutely. And I will share my, while I divided the book into three parts, family, faith, freedom, the family section is by far my personal favorite. And in terms of the, you know, really the heartwarming response has been regarding this section of the book. If I pull, if I pull back a second, um, before we delve into the Exodus itself, I'm going to assert that family life occupies such a primal place in the Jewish condition, in the human condition, certainly in the Jewish condition. But to put it this way, I'm, I'm going to argue that we invest our greatest resources, money, time, which I see as even more expensive than money, and emotion, which I certainly see as more expensive, we invest our greatest investiture in of money, time, emotion into family life. Yeah, I, I have six kids, I agree. <laughs> right? Right? Totally. There, 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 you, there you go. My, right? I don't want to say right where it hurts, but right <laughs> where, what can I, what can I say? Right. What can I say? We know what talks. And for me to be able to embrace this aspect of Jewish life, there has to be a basic assumption that meaning, purpose in a Jewish sense, which is ultimately one of connecting to Hashem, connecting to the divine, it must be that it is through relationships, through family, through child rearing, with all of its challenges, it must be this is where meaning lies, this is where the divine lies. And that is why I found it so powerful to trace this theme in 
the Exodus story, which we know Ezekiel the Navi Echaskal calls the birth of the Jewish people, Yom Horatayah. This is who we are as a people. We are a people of the family. That, 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 that was a very powerful, really, theme to me. And then when it became apparent that, you know, as, as you were saying, Rav Shlomo, not merely a clue, a hint, but everything was coalescing. Everything was coming together around this thing, beginning with the opening story of the slavery itself. You know, slavery is really a, a perennial issue in the human condition. One people enslaves another. One, one, one group of men subjugates another. And there are certain basic assumptions which we make cross-culturally in terms of what the issues at hand are. However, it became apparent to me from an in-depth study of our story that it is really developing in a different way. It is really, there's a different rhythm to this story than certainly the standard slavery narratives, which I knew of. Certainly most slavery narratives I knew of we're one of economic gain. You know, certainly, certainly those who justified slavery throughout history argued economic necessity. You know, whether we talk about in our own country and some of the horrors of slavery in our own country without, a, without justifying the unjustifiable, but certainly Southern plantation owners believe that the production of cotton and their textiles and the like required, required them to required this institution, atrocious as we might deem it today. Economic necessity generally, when we think about the Russian serfs, whom the czar sub subjugated. However, the story in the story of the Exodus, there seems to be a very different dynamic at work. Pharaoh says I'm he's concerned by the multiplying of this people, the Jewish people then called the Hebrews. Yeah. Multiplying. And there I go, more Jewish babies, more Jewish babies, more Jewish babies. By the way, parenthetically, I've heard such diatribes um, expressed by our enemies till this very day. More Jewish babies, more Jewish babies. And he says, you know, this people will be a fifth element, fifth column amongst us and join our enemy when we are attacked. And therefore, I want to engage in this program of slavery. Now, that is a surprising leap, perhaps because we noticed the story so well, we take it for granted. But when I take a step back for a moment, that's a surprising leap. He has a problem with rapidly growing families, population growth, and therefore his response is slavery, not sterilization, not various other more modern techniques, which various governments have employed, but slavery. I found this very surprising. But then it became apparent to me through an in-depth study of early commentators and, and, and Midrash that this is how many of the sages in fact understand it. Pharaoh saw this as a crude form of population control that he believed by enslaving the Jewish people, they would be physically broken, perhaps physically rendered impotent and capable of having children, but moreover, emotionally labor-weary, sucked out of all of their energy, that they wouldn't be motivated 
to pursue relationship, intimacy, and everything which is beautiful, which creates a family. So that opening realization to me, that was a wow. This told me, every, certainly every story of human misery and ultimately human salvation needs to be studied kind of in its own and not simply to be uh, you know, conflated with other narratives, but certainly our narrative as Jews, this is our narrative. I need to study this in depth from within. And the more I developed this, the more it became apparent to me, this is, this is just a very different rhythm. It's a very different story. And it became a very moving story of how a Jewish, of yes, the general narrative of resilience and resistance to tyranny, but in a much, in a very particular, with a very particular focus, commitment to relationship, commitment to intimacy, commitment to family life. So the story began to take on a color of its own. Yeah. Amazing. It, it really is amazing. And, you know, it, it calls to mind, I just saw an article today that says that more and more we're, we're finding today that, you know, we'll, we have less and less people in America that are interested in having children. People are saying we're too busy to have kids. You know, we want to have more, you know, kids are kids are a burden. So you're finding that now and it's uh, and, and it's a, a form of, you know, not obvious slavery, but it's a form of subtle slavery, a slavery that you wouldn't call slavery, but it's a slavery of the mind. It's sort of this hidden type of slavery where just people like our lifestyle doesn't doesn't fit having children. So we're finding people that have less and less and less children. I, I, I think that there's some statistic that at the rate that we're having children now, like, the population won't replace itself or something like that, right? But it has a lot to do just with this idea that that what 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 Pharaoh was doing, and this is what makes it so relevant to us, is that Pharaoh was creating a lifestyle where the population control would happen on its own. And that's kind of you know what we're seeing in like Western society today. So uh yeah, it is a it, it, it's a fascinating, fascinating insight. Um that being said, you 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 put a spotlight on sort of the role of women. And this was something that I discussed also a little bit in my own book. And, and this is why it fascinated me that you really discussed it at great length. The role of women, both what we see in the verses of the Torah, but also the way our sages focus on the role of women um, in the Exodus story. So maybe you can speak about that a little bit. Yes, thank you. And again, this is to me heartwarming. I will say with some bias, um, due to some of the very, what can I say, some of the very meaningful women in my life, my mother, my wife, my sisters, um, you, you know, really the entire notion that in traditional Jewish society, the role of womanhood was celebrated. And a society, perhaps unlike modern society, in which distinction of roles was more pronounced, but a, a glorification of the feminine role in traditional Jewish life, particularly vis-a-vis -vis the Exodus, this became very powerful. Kind of the, the impetus of this study, of what, one, what, what some might call, what some might call feminine studies of the Exodus. We have this well-known teaching of the sages, which is very often, certainly in lectures, which I have heard, is very often quoted without its full context. We are taught this teaching 
In the merit of the righteous women of that generation, Israel was redeemed from Egypt, which as a slogan is beautiful. As I said, this goes back to the glorious pedestal we have always placed our women on. But there's a very specific focus to it. It was not just any mitzvot, any good deeds these Jewish women were doing. There was something very particular here, because in that citation from the Talmud, what it discusses is as follows. In heartwarming imagery, it speaks of how the men were labor-weary labor -weary, and were, so to speak, collapsing and just barely getting by. And their wives, their loving wives, met them in the field. And they fed them, they washed them, they lathered them. And then they enticed them to intimacy. This heartwarming, this is heartwarming on so many levels. Loyalty. This is um, this is caregiving when one's closest friend, when one's spouse is in a down position. Everything we, everything which we all yearn for, but this is the characteristically feminine role, which I am going to call the nurturer, the nurturer role which is one which certainly I am a father of five daughters. Yeah. I want my daughters to be proud of their nurturer role. A righteous Jewish woman is a nurturer in any capacity of life, be it the home, be it the office, be it the synagogue, be it the community. There's a fundamental nurturer role. And it is in this context that the sages are saying, well, family life continued because of this love, this nurturing of family life, that is the merit of the Exodus. And it became so clear to me, of course that's the merit of the Exodus. Because when we understand that Pharaoh was really trying to undermine family life, and they were championing family life, so they are, of course, the ultimate resistors. They are the heroines of the story. And this became very compelling. And especially when we see in other passages in the Talmud and, and in the Midrash that the men were giving up again and again, understandably, understandably, due to the conditions they were living in. You know, both in the citation before when it speaks about how the men were labor-weary and were unmotivated. I mean, let's let's be honest. When were when have men been unmotivated to engage in physical relationship, hopefully emotional relationship as well? But it was the conditions at hand. And elsewhere, in the Talmud, in the same tractate, we find this very compelling showdown between father and daughter. Amram, who was the father of Moses, the father of Miriam, the father of Aaron, kind of, you would say, we would say, the progenitor of the royal family. Um, so the first family, you might say, of, of, of the redemption. And Amram was very influential. And at a certain point, he said, this is enough. Our babies, our male babies are being thrown into the Nile River. Family life is unsustainable. It's just not worth it anymore. And he pulls back. And because he was influential, other men in the community separated from their wives. Now, this passage in the Talmud, which is relatively well known, immediately becomes much more dramatic based on everything we've studied. Because if Pharaoh's entire aim was the breakdown of the family, well, here, 
here we have capitulation to everything the Pharaoh is seeking to do. As Rav Shlomo mentions before, what makes this, this story so relevant is we are not simply dealing with tyranny from without, by fiat of Pharaoh saying, don't do this, but conditioning within the people a desire to disengage. Well, here we have the menfolk, as represented by their leader, Hyman, doing exactly that. Who is it who stares Amram down? His young daughter, Miriam. In my judgment, the most unsung heroine of the Exodus. <laughs> I'm going to actually posit as influential as Moses, which is obviously quite a claim. That's an audacious claim I'm making. But she tells him, in a sense, you are worse than the Pharaoh. Now think about a young girl staring down her influential father. But sometimes gutsiness is required. This is feminine gutsiness. This is the gutsiness of a nurturer. And when we think for a moment of the stereotype, which many have of traditional societies, that women were subjected, women did not have a voice. Well, here we can embrace in our tradition. We have a young girl. Where did a young girl find this voice? Evidently, Jewish culture from time immemorial was a culture which cultivated man and woman alike, and even boy and girl alike, to voice themselves with virtue. And as a young woman, she says, I, Miriam, but by extension, all my counterpart, righteous young women and older women, we say no. No is no. We will not allow family life to discontinue. So here we have several texts really coalescing together, cleaving together in a very compelling way regarding feminine virtue, the feminine role as the nurturer. And I must say, as an educator such as yourself, as a Jewish educator such as yourself, when we want to encourage our young people to embrace their tradition, this is a tradition we can be proud of. Please don't allow stereotypes of other ancient cultures and the like to adulterate our tradition. Well, here we have it. Here we have it. This is not a this is not a patriarchal society which stunts women at all. This is a healthy Jewish culture in which men and women are perfect each other by being true to themselves. And at times when the men are kind of faltering. The natural characteristic of a woman, the nurturer, becomes indispensable. This becomes the force of redemption. Yeah, it's, it's so so beautifully said. You know, as as I'm reading your book and as I'm hearing you speak, first of all, I just think it's 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 worth it to emphasize. I think for the listeners that like there is a robust conversation that is happening in a very concealed what we call tsniot tsniot means you know hidden and 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 we're careful to speak about matters of intimacy matters of sexuality things that happen in the bedroom we're careful how we speak about it it's spoken about by our sages in very 
you know, in 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 subtle ways. In it's 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 spoken about the way our sages give over messages without saying things always, you know, just completely blunt, especially matters that, you know, are a little bit more private. But that being said, once one learns how to read between the lines, there is a robust conversation that happens throughout the words of our of our of of, of our sages that give us guidance and really focus on these aspects of marital relations, intimacy, sexuality, you know, are and, and our sages speak about it with such holiness and with such beauty, right? But it just it emphasizes the importance of really, really learning, really, you know, seeing what's behind the text. Because again, one could read the whole Torah, one could read the whole story of the Exodus and never see the things that you're saying. Um and uh and 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 you know a young woman might get messages otherwise you know and let's just say something maybe maybe you can clarify and you bring it up in the book but maybe it's worth speaking about we have a line that our sages say at one point that says that that uh a woman should it would it would lack sniut it would lack modesty if she overtly declare to her husband that she desires intimacy so one might misunderstand that to say that actually what our sages are trying to do is they're trying to downplay, they're trying to control, so to speak, the you know the the sexuality of 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 of, of the woman. And what you're bringing out, what you're highlighting over here from the words of our sages is that's that's clearly not what they're doing. And in fact, they they applaud this role, which you know you're you're calling the that you know the nurturing role, but obviously it's nurturing in a very specific setting that you're speaking about. So you know I, I think that it's important, but even just these two different concepts, maybe you can you can explain a little bit, you know, just the way you explain in the book, sort of how to balance these two things. So I think the way the, the way you frame things with Shlomo is really, is this not the greatest testament for the need for a tradition, for an oral Torah, a living Torah? You know, if someone picks up text and reads it for themselves, they can reach very, very different conclusions um, in regards to the whole issue of Tzniyot. I struggle and I hesitate in my translation. We know translation in any language, by definition, is inaccurate because every language has its own feel and nuances, but all the more so with Hebrew, which we consider to be the holy tongue, the divine tongue. The general English translation for Tzniyot, certainly the language I have always seen, is modesty. And I feel somewhat incomplete with that translation because certainly to me, modesty has a certain ring of shame. Perhaps that's personal, that's me. When I think of the word of modesty, I think of that word shame. And here we have this aspect of life, which as I develop in the book, is the most sacred, the most beautiful, the most meaningful. Shame would be the last association. I would dare say we've had other religious cultures which have preached that, much to the detriment of humanity. Uh, truth be told, I do not have an English translation that I'm thrilled with. Privacy is better than modesty, 
because certainly we have many precious areas of life which we keep in private. Um, people of substance keep matters of meaning private by virtue of their meaning. The more something kind of hangs out there, the more by definition it's cheapened. I think in terms, and I use this analogy in the book, I think in terms of a gem or perhaps a, a pearl, the nest in a black velvet box, the nest that way, its preciousness is displayed. However, when a pearl or a gem is just hung out there in a gaudy display, it's cheap. That is my understanding. Sexuality and intimacy is so precious and so special. The privacy associated with it is a function of its beauty, is a function of its meaning. I always, I think of this imagery in my own life. The pearl finesse in the black velvet box as opposed to the gaudy display. But it is so easy, as Rai Booksbell mentioned, it is so easy to turn this idea of sneakers on its head and to have these associations with shame, perhaps in a culture such as our own, which I would dare say, perhaps I am, perhaps I am criticizing postmodern culture, but in a culture which is so public with everything, where people on social media throw out their feelings and every musing. And I think to myself at times, where's the preciousness of a confidence? There are people who I would confide things in that I wouldn't tell anyone else. And that is what makes that confidence so special. It's a superficial society, really, which conflates sneer with shame. In particular, regarding the whole issue of feminine initiation of intimacy and the Talmudic passages and the drushan which I develop, I harp on a teaching of the sages which tells us that while in the world as we know it, in a post-Garden of Eden world, the Garden of Eden things were different, and I have a chapter on that, but in the world as we know it and in present human consciousness as we know it, a woman is not supposed to be absolutely overt in initiating, but say the sages, she is supposed to initiate sensitively and subtly, and that is not only accepted, that is embraced. They say a wife who initiates with softness and sensitivity, that will make the relationship ever more meaningful. Now, of course, with an exodus focus, I am developing this in terms of those righteous women in the field who even lured their husbands and brought their husbands close. I'm going to suggest in a very, on a very, very simplistic level, ignoring even some of the more esoteric and Kabbalistic ideas in the book, which I develop in this context, there's something very powerful, I could say as a man, there's something very powerful to a woman who does not feel a need to usurp the masculine role. She can say, I know he needs this to be a man, and I am not threatened by this. I, I always return to that word at the risk of overusing a word, 
I'm sure as an author, you can relate to the challenge of word variation. But there are certain words which are so powerful that I have no way to avoid that word, the nurturer. When she initiates from the nurturer perspective, without any aura of selfishness or personal agenda from the nurturing role, and when there is that trust in that relationship, that every, that everyone's needs, physical, emotional, all, everything which is really in the package of this most powerful endeavor, this most meaningful endeavor of human relationship and sexuality, when she approaches it from that nurture perspective, so initiating but initiating with sensitivity rather than an explicit, almost crass, there's something very feminine, but what I'm suggesting is powerfully feminine because she's initiating, but she's initiating it as a woman. There's something very magical about that. I will say on the most superficial level, there is something I don't want to say very disarming, disarming to a to, to a Calvinistic, you know, a non, non-characteristic Jewish husband, virtuous Jewish husband. There's, there's something very powerful about this. I do not mean to mix in another Jewish story, but another on another Jewish holiday. But parenthetically, it is my belief regarding the holiday of Purim and the Megillah story that Esther's power, Queen Esther, when we think of the way she attracted the affection of the king of Ahasuerus in that story, when he had these beauty pageants and the, this access, access to the bodies of all the women in the world, and we all know vain Ahasuerus, we all know what he thought about him and his exploitation. And who is it who wins his affection? Esther. Esther, who has Esther, whose very name means hiddenness. Well, there's something so disarming and so powerful about this noble woman who is beautiful within and without, without cheapening herself. Suddenly, she's seen as a person, and the entire array of human experience and human sexuality, which we celebrate in Jewish tradition physical, emotional, spiritual, all comes together as two people. There's something very, very, very powerful. And I would like these all readers to think to themselves. Think about your children. And with this feminine focus of mind, think about your daughters and mothers and the type of women you want them to be. Capable women, achieving women, women who are not and undermined. And I'm hoping that some of this articulation evokes in you, evokes in your heart something very powerful, something very attractive about this whole concept of Jewish sneat, Jewish relationship, and the feminine rule. Oh, it's really, really powerful. And I can tell you, I mean, the, the fact that you build it up from the words of our sages are, are, are amazing. You know, I know my wife, 
in her own coaching. She does coaching and she coaches a lot of women and a lot of women are going through things in their marriage. She's literally, I mean, these teachings are the teachings that have transformed marriages. I mean, it really is. And then just to to build it right into the story of, of the Exodus is, is really, really, really beautiful. Um, I, I, I want to just move on to something else. You sort of take this idea of of the relationship, the intimate relationship between husband and wife, and then you sort of recreate it as a um, microcosm, if you will, maybe that's not the right word, of the relationship between God and the Jewish people as a whole, or God and the individual Jew. Uh, so if you could speak a little bit to that, seeing the seeing the, the the husband and wife relationship as a parallel to the relationship between God and the Jewish people because I think that's really you know the the icing on the cake how you you're really moving back and forth in the book between seeing the 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 the, the focus on the family and then seeing that as a parallel for the relationship between God and the Jewish people yes so this was a very powerful realization to me in my quest to bring things together, to create a unified Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim Exodus story. I wanted to take the different dimensions, you know, the simple level story, what we call in Hebrew the shot of the story, and the more esoteric dimensions, and see how they are working in unison with each other. And we all know that on the holiday of Pesach on Passover, we read Shir Hashir, the Song of Songs, which analogizes the Jewish people's relationship to God, to that of spouses. And as I developed this, it became apparent to me, number one, that this notion is fundamental to the Exodus story that I began to trace in Midrasha a perspective seeing the Jewish people oppressed in Egypt and God intervening as their, as their redeemer through the prism of the knight in shining armor and the damsel in distress. Now, I know some might for a moment feel some discomfort with that because that sounds like something of the fairy tales. But, you know, it is such a cross-cultural story, the damsel in distress and the knight in shining armor. Um, in sacred and mundane literature, like in cross-culturally, it's my belief that the Torah is capitalizing on something the Torah speaks. We are taught this teaching, Dibra, Torah, Kalashim, Bnei Adam, Hashem, the God, the divine author, speaks in almost the human literary tongue because he wants he wants a story which speaks to us and speaks to our consciousness. So seeing it this way, God lovingly rescuing the Jewish people, that this creates a trust. He is our knight in shining armor to whom we turn, but the story doesn't end there, you see, because the knight in shining armor and the damsel in distress is only the beginning of the story. Assuming they get married, assuming they live happily ever after. Think about any sort of fairy tale. You think of Sleeping Beauty. Think of any of them, right? The fairy tale, as is generally true about Western romance, only tells you the beginning of the story. Hmm. But what is that happily ever after? If they really get married, 
the happily ever after is a marriage. Now, a marriage is a relationship of reciprocity. It's not a one-way street idea. So that presupposes that while in the beginning, when she was the damsel in distress, perhaps he took the first step. Well, if this is going to be a relationship here, it's not a parent and a child in which there's a dependent, a dependency here. There is a, some would use the word codependency. I don't like this. I don't like to see relationships from a place of needs. There is a complementing and there is a, there is a give and take here. That, that is husband and wife as we know it. That's a spousal relationship as we know it. And as you mentioned before, she becomes the nurturer, right? Exactly, exactly. Well, to contemplate for a moment that God is including us as active participants. There is, if we are, so to speak, his wife, there is something he wants us to do. And it is as though he is entrusting us and depending on us for something. And here, using that nurture motif, the concept in the, in the Midrash, which tells us God sees the earth, the world, as his home. Hashem wanted to Hashem wanted to as though live on earth. Hashem wanted an earth which is permeated with the divine presence. He wanted a world which is a beautiful place, a place brimming with everything we would associate with God, a world of love, a world of justice. So who does that depend on? There's a nurturer here. Well, it's us. We keep house for God. You know how we keep house? We make this world the type of home that in our parlance, the type of home he wants to come home to at night. But of course, it's not only at night. We, we make this world the type of place he wants to be. And he's depending on us to keep this house for him. In very real ways, moving from the esoteric stuff, in very real ways, what type of world Am I creating? What type of world am I going to leave to my children and to subsequent generations? How this to me becomes a very, very compelling way to look at our relationship with God. That the our Father in Heaven motif, which is one motif, is not the only motif. This motif of marriage is so compelling because it takes two to tangle, and we're tangling with God, and we are serving a an active role, a proactive role. And you think of even some of that imagery vis-a-vis -vis intimacy we were discussing before, how it is the role of the wife to initiate. We'll translate it now in terms of God wants us to initiate, not only to respond. God does not only want me to keep the letter of the law, because when I keep the letter of the law, I'm following. He told me to do X, Y, Z. But when I think for myself through Torah study, through creative Torah study, deeper. Well, what does God want me to find for myself and bring into the relationship all by myself? And that is, of course, novel Torah's ideas, but not only novel Torah ideas, novel Jewish initiatives um, of all sorts, acts of kindness that weren't aren't dictated anywhere. You think of creative ideas people have. I see this, I will, I will, I will be very, I will be very explicit. I am a romantic at heart. I could not have written the book otherwise. I see this, these religious acts in romantic terms. Mm -hmm. God, 
I'm taking the initiation here. I'm not just doing what you told me, just as in a relationship, I try not only to do what my spouse tells me, I try to anticipate and take the initiative. That to me is a, this is a precious, precious way to see my own personal relationship to God. And I'm suggesting all of our, each in our own way, our relationship to God. Wow. Really, really beautiful. And I love, I love one thing that I think it bothered me before, but you, you use that concept to answer so beautifully how like, when it comes to night of the Seder, we don't just like read the story, you know, from, from a Chumash, you know, we don't just like read the verses in the story, but we read it that the author of the Haggadah uses it. He uses the words of our sages. He uses drash exposition and all sorts of things like that to make it so, you know, to, to make it so much more flowery and so much more alive. And, we, and, 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 and we have these conversations instead of, instead of just, you know, just reading a text because it brings alive this whole idea of what we're supposed to be doing. And that is taking the story and doing exactly what you did with the book. And that is, you know, even just highlighting, highlighting the beauty of it. So, um, and, and, and even the custom to say Shir Hashirim, to read the Song of Songs on the night of the Seder also speaks to that, that, you know, the whole buildup of the Seder, now go read the most beautiful intimate book in, in, in all of Torah. So uh, really, really wonderful. I'm excited to read the the rest of the book and maybe <laughs> to go back and have another conversation about the different parts. But this is so, so beautiful and so much to take in with us to the holiday of Passover. So uh, Riviona, you want to um, share with us how, first of all, how can people get the book and where else can people find you and your ideas? Thank you. So first of all, I want to rearticulate. Thank you, Rabbi Booksbound. This has been a pleasure. And Rabbi Book, I live in Baltimore. Rabbi Booksbound has a reputation in the whole Mid-Atlantic region <laughs> as a Jewish educator par excellence who mixes scholarship with music with exciting jewish living fun jewish living this is this is the type of judaism i want my children to know is their heritage thank you but it, it is a pleasure to have spent this time together my book can be purchased through a number of mediums the most trusted trusted way to access the book if your local judaica store does not have it is online through feldheim feldheim ships them and that is certainly a, a, a most trusted way to procure them. But there are still some available in various Jewish bookstores. My lovely daughter today was calling Judaica stores in Chicago and Cleveland. And she was playing dumb. I want a breathtaking panorama. <laughs> panorama. Do you have any in the store? Oh, you don't have any available. I think he's a pretty popular guy, too. And she was giving it all of her teenage charm. Um, so... Online through Feldheim is that certainly a trusted way to receive the book, but I'm hoping there are still some available in the local judaics. Wow, wow, fantastic, fantastic. And um, thank you. Is there any other way, any other place that you'd like our listeners to learn more about you and your teachings? Thank you. So I operate through several platforms. Presently, I do videos for a platform, a pretty well-known platform called Torah Anytime. I also lecture several times a week live here in the Baltimore area. Please, anyone who would like to reach out to me via email. I love fan email. Um, I've been receiving adoring emails. People are really, really generous with their feeling. RabbiSclare at gmail.com. That's R-A-B-B-I-S-K-L-A-R-E at gmail.com. I will welcome your thoughts, your feedback. 
And I really look forward to connecting with people. Thank yeah. you. Thank, Thank you, Aviona. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for your beautiful work, which has enhanced my preparation for Passover, and I'm sure will change my whole Seder and Passover experience. So thank you for everything and wishing, wishing you much success in all of your holy work. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you'll subscribe to the podcast and you can always go to rabbishlomo.com for more great content and resources and to connect directly with me.